Thank you, girls. That was beautiful. You did a great job. I'd like to invite you now to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, and we'll be reading verses 37 through 39. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. At this time, uh, Elder Richard Magnuson will bring us this morning's message, Homeland Security. Good morning and happy Sabbath. And girls, I just want to add my thanks for that beautiful, beautiful music. Uh, believe me, I know how many hours upon hours of practice that that represents. Uh, but you know, God's word tells us that he gives each and every one of us talents. And, and some of us, he gives a whole lot of talent. And I don't have any musical talent, so I can really appreciate those who have it. And... And some he gives talents to, to just be able to listen to someone and empathize and, and hear their story and smile and encourage them. But what the Bible says is whatever your talent is, that you should be willing to share it with others. And so thank you for sharing your talent. I think everyone here had their day brightened just by hearing you play this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, I bring you greetings both from uh, my home church, Kathy and our home church in Sacramento, Sacramento Capital City Church, and also from the conference office. Uh, at the conference office, uh, I am outside of the education department. I'm the only director who has never served as a pastor. I'm an ordained local elder and have been for over 20 years. Uh, but I actually came to the conference office after practicing law for almost 20 years. Um, not too far from here, just uh, up Highway 20, a little spell over in Lake County. And uh, worked for the county there in their county council's office for about 10, and then another five in private practice. When out of the blue, I mean literally out of the blue, the phone rang one day, and it was the conference treasurer uh, saying that they'd like to talk to me about something that I might be interested in. And they laid out for me a ministry in the conference where I would be charged with helping to oversee all of our well, over 200 locations, churches and schools and camps and retirement center, and to make sure that they, they operate uh, both fully insured and also that they operate in such a way that uh, the, the churches and the schools aren't held up in their ministries by losses, by people getting hurt or people getting sued. And back then, we were just beginning to hear the, 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 the initial stories about the child abuse allegations, mainly in the Catholic Church. And we knew that the Adventist Church had an issue and one of the things they didn't know when they called me, but they found out shortly thereafter, was that the first seven years of my legal practice was representing Child Protective Services. Uh, 
and going into court each and every week uh, representing abused and neglected children. And so I took on that task almost immediately in educating our churches in how we can make our churches safe places for our children, and that's become a great part of my ministry. Along the way, I also picked up human resources, so I helped to take care of all of our pastors and our teachers and our other support staff, making sure that they have the benefits that uh, they're working for, that they know how to utilize them, and trying to keep those, uh, those things running smoothly so that they can concentrate on their ministries that they do, whether it's keeping a church clean, keeping an office running smoothly, pastoring one or more congregations, teaching a classroom, running a school. All these ministries so vitally important. So it was beautiful to be able to come over, drive over here um, Thursday night. Uh, I don't know about here, but Sacramento, we had a little bit of weather earlier in the week. Uh, in fact, right up until the time we left, uh, late Thursday, it was still raining. And of course, Tuesday was just wild. Uh, we lost a tree, and there were a bunch of trees down in our neighborhood in Sacramento. And so we had a lot of cleanup to do through the week in the, in the continuing rain. But in faith, I went ahead and strapped the kayaks to the roof of the Ford and brought them on over here because it had been a while since we'd been able to kayak over at Albion. And praise the Lord when we woke up yesterday morning. Wasn't it gorgeous? What a beautiful day we were blessed with and followed by another beautiful day today. And so got to enjoy the, the wilderness back up there in the Albion Estuary and Little River and uh, spend some time with my wife out of our busy schedules. Such a blessing to be able to come and worship with you. It's actually the most favorite part of my job uh, is the weekends when I get to get out into the churches and share God's word, which we're going to do now, right after we talk to our Creator for just a moment. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to open your word and to worship you and learn more about your love and how you care for us. Lord, we pray that your Spirit will be with me as I share your words and your love with these people. Lord, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Last month, um, got to do something very unusual. I don't travel very much, but I got to go out to New York, and I was in Manhattan. And one evening, uh, it was a beautiful, warm evening, uh, got in the subway, rode it all the way down to the southern tip of Manhattan, to Battery, Battery Park down there, because I wanted to... Uh, I hadn't seen the Statue of Liberty in many, many years. Um, been nine years, actually. And wanted a chance to see it at night, all lit up, because I knew that they had refurbished it, that her torch was now blazing again, and that seemed like the best place for me from where I was to be able to see that. And, uh, and it was beautiful. It was a gorgeous night. The fireflies were flickering out in Battery Park, and it was peaceful for Manhattan. Uh, and as I was walking back through Battery Park, back to the subway station, I was given pause because there was a sculpture. There was a huge sculpture in the shape of the world, uh, the world upon a hand, a giant hand. And this sculpture was made of brass, and yet it was all battered, had creases in it. It, it looked almost like a topographic 
representation of the earth, except that the bends and the bulges and the, and the, the creases in it bore no resemblance to any continent or river or mountain range uh, that I've ever seen on our map. And there was something very familiar about it. And I walked around it and, and looked at it. It was lit in the light of, a, of an eternal flame uh, that burns next to it. And as I walked around it, I realized that I had seen it before. In fact, I had seen it nine years before, but it wasn't here. The last time I had seen that sculpture, it stood in World Trade Center Plaza in between the two towers. And it was a gorgeous, smooth, bright globe of brass representing the world in the World Trade Center and how this was the center uh, from man's perspective of financial dealings and whatnot. And here was that sculpture again, now all battered, and somehow they had put it back together again after being buried under tons of rubble. It was 2001. It was a spring. When I wasn't in New York alone that time, uh, far from it. Um, you heard of the, the Westlake School over here in Lake County, uh, right to the Nice Lucerne Cutoff? We all, all called it the school with the rocket because it has a red, white, and blue rocket in the playground that has a slide and the kids can climb inside of it. And so we uh, decided, all our kids went to Westlake School. Uh, we lived there in Lake County. And we decided in 2000 that we were going to take them on a historical tour. And, and so in the spring of 2001, we actually did. And we had 40 uh, parents and students. And we visited uh, historic sites from Gettysburg down to Yorktown, uh, the Jamestown, site of the Jamestown settlement, um, went to Boston and saw where Benjamin Franklin did a lot of his writing and his work with his presses, Colonial Williamsburg, uh, of course, George Washington's home at Mount Vernon. We went to Washington, D.C. and toured the Capitol and the Smithsonian and went to the National Archives. National Ar Archives is a place that not everyone goes to when they visit Washington, D.C. It's a... Uh, Greek uh, building with columns all around and a, and a great domed room. And <clears throat> if, if perhaps you've seen the movie National Treasure, you've, you've seen it featured there because that is the, the building in which you find the Declaration of Independence, the Declaration of Independence. And so we and all the students and the parents were able to see that historical document drafted in such an uncertain time of this nation's history. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Uh, we were declaring independence from the greatest power that the earth had ever known. Uh, Great Britain, a world-spanning empire. And what chance did these 13 little colonies have to successfully break away and form their own nation conceived in liberty for all? And we also got to visit New York City and the Empire State Building and World Trade Center Plaza. And, of course, none of us knew that just five months later, 9-11 and those attacks would occur. But it brought back to mind as I was there that evening looking at that battered but reconstructed sculpture, 
that throughout history, including this nation's history, but throughout history, we face so many uncertain times. Now, in response to 9-11, one of the things that our national government did was it took a whole bunch of separate government agencies that previously hadn't done a very good job of communicating with each other, and in the government's infinite wisdom, threw them all together in one huge agency now. Over 21 separate agencies now under one department. Anyone know the name of that department? Homeland Security. That's right. Homeland Security. And uh, I I get to deal with them somewhat um, just in my human resources duties because we have pastors and some Bible workers who come here from other countries. And immigration is now part of Homeland Security. And so hardly a week goes by that I don't have some dealings. And in some case, we have excellent immigration attorneys that handle these matters for both here in California and at the General Conference for us, uh, which is fortunate because I I know virtually nothing about immigration law. And we... uh, it's something that we have to deal with now on such a regular basis when before it really wasn't an issue. Um, the government has put such a high priority on making sure that people who are here are here for legitimate reasons and that when they're supposed to leave, that they do leave. And so we, we hear stories like we heard this morning at prayer time and praise time, uh, people who have been here for so many years now facing challenges to their ability to remain here, either voluntarily because they want to take care of things, or I receive word that uh, someone in one of our churches is going through removal proceedings. They've raised their children here. They've been here since the late 80s, and yet it's a different world that we that we live in, facing all of these challenges. As a nation, we face challenges. As individuals, we're facing huge uncertainties in our lives now. I mean, we all know uh, there's people here, no doubt, who have, who have lost work because of the downturn in the economy. And if not, you know someone who has, uh, especially in Northern California, where so much of our economy is based on industries that are facing uh, such huge pressures right now. Um, you know, fishing industry and the lumber industry, construction and building. Uh, in our church alone, we have many people who are unemployed. Some good news I received yesterday as a conference, you know, we've been facing uh, a financial challenge as well. And, you know, the the income that has come in from Tithe uh, has been down almost 5% from last year. And so we did what any household, what any family would do. You make the tough choices. You say, you know, we don't have as much coming in. We need to cut. We need to adjust our budget. And so, you know, 17% of the conference staff were let go earlier this year. And so there's some empty desks to remind us of that. We do those types of things. The good news that I received yesterday was that um, for the third quarter, uh, which ended at the end of September, um, we actually had over an $80,000 increase in tithe from the year before, which is just wonderful news uh, for our churches. Our membership is higher than it has ever been before. Dozens of people are being baptized each and every week just in this conference. And we're now well over 41,000 members in the Northern California Conference alone. And that's just wonderful to hear that encouragement. 
And so while we're still a little bit behind where we were last year, now instead of almost 5% behind, we're only about two, uh, just a little over 2.5% behind where we were. And the end of the year is historically uh, when uh, the conference does better uh, financially in terms of, of tithe as people get to the end of the year and know more of what their situation is. So we just praise God for our, our churches and for the blessings that he continues to heap upon us. The uh, ways that people deal with insecurities are, are, are so vast. Um, I know that in uh, 1981, Americans spent about $100 million on health insurance and life insurance. Um, 2007, the last year that I have a total figure available for, that same figure became $5 billion. Billion with a B. We, we do that to, in some way, buy ourselves some sense of security, that if we get sick or we get hurt, there'll be uh, a way that we can cover those bills. Uh, if we die, there'll be money there to help take care of our, our families uh, if we're gone. We're, we're buying security. We see earthquakes. We saw another earthquake this week out in Indonesia by Samoa, and uh, huge earthquakes, you know, hundreds killed weeks ago. Uh, by the shaking in Indonesia, and it just tells us that you know at this time in the Earth's history, you know this is not unexpected for those who read God's word. We know that as time gets short, that the Earth will begin to show the strain, and that there will be earthquakes, there will be disasters, and so we know that we live in uncertain times, and yet we strive for a sense of security both in our personal lives and as a nation. We can take comfort, though, by looking at God's word and seeing how he has brought his people through very, very uncertain times. Thinking of the life of Moses and the times that he went through. Of course, he was saved by a miracle as a baby. And as he grew up, because of his adopted family connections, He was able to go to the best schools. They sent him to the military academy where he excelled. Uh, He was a great leader. He was destined to be a great general at the very least in the Egyptian army. He excelled in all of his classes and yet he knew who he was. He knew what he was. And the burden that was on his heart, what was always in his mind was the suffering of his people the Hebrews, and he saw it virtually every day, how they were forced to labor, how they were beaten, how they were subjugated as slaves in this Egyptian nation, and he was so anxious. He felt God's leading. He felt that God had something fantastic in store for him. He felt that he was going to be a hero, that God had placed him in the situations that somehow he could rescue his people, and yet day after day, week after week went by and no opportunity presented itself. And as time went by, his frustration grew. When, Lord, when will the time be right for me to save my people? And as his frustration got almost to the the breaking point, one day he comes upon an Egyptian guard beating one of his Hebrew countrymen, family. And all that pent-up 
excited energy comes out of Moses and he strikes down that guard in just an instant. And as his lifeless body lay there, Moses realizes that all his plans, all his visions of how he thought the future was going to be have now been tossed right out the window. Now his future, which once seemed certain, our wannabe hero is now cast into a world of unknowns. So he has to flee the country. Doesn't know where he can go. Doesn't know who he can trust. And he ends up at his future father-in-law's home, Jethro's, and he becomes the keeper of his flocks. And it's there that Moses watches sheep. And it's there that Moses begins to learn something about God. And there, surrounded and sheltered by the mountains as he watches over the, the, the sheep, dwarfed by the towers of stone that surround him, Moses begins to realize the might, the glory of God, the power of God to do anything. And so there, seeming to stand in the very presence of God himself, overshadowed by God's protective power, he finally loses all notions that he is going to save his people. In fact, he realizes that there's nothing that he, Moses, can do without the power of God. I invite you this morning to open your Bibles again, this time to the book of Psalms. We're going to look at Psalms 91, all 16 verses. I've read Psalms 91 over and over, and I've come convinced that these are not trite words expressing the power of God and how God looks over us. I've become convinced that these are the words of a man who has seen that power in action, who has learned to trust that power of God even in very, very uncertain times. And in studying uh, the Psalms, and in this Psalm particularly, I find that there is actually uh, quite a bit of evidence as to who the author is. And if you turn back and you look at Psalms 90, the Psalms just before, it tells us that Psalms 90 is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And if you read 90 and 91 together, you, you realize that they're written in very much the same style and meter and wording. And indeed, it is Jewish tradition that both Psalms 90 and 91 do have the same author, and that was Moses. And I want to start by reading verses 1 and 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High... And I think about Moses tending his flocks there in the mountains. He will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. If... If Moses was the author, no doubt he wrote this towards the end of his life, and he's looking back. He has led his people out of Egypt. He has led them to the very threshold of the promised land. And he knows that he's not going to enter in, but he wants to pin words to both 
these Hebrews and those who would come later to share with them his trust in a mighty God, to share with them how they too can trust God to help them to face whatever challenges that they are going to experience. And so he shares lessons from his own experience, and he writes to keep his people trusting in God. And he probably thought back 40 years previous when God called him from watching the sheep, and he told him to go to Egypt, and he found himself there before that Pharaoh. And he called to that Pharaoh the words of God, saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh's refusal to honor God's command. And one after another, the plagues began to fall upon Egypt. And the Egyptians and their crops and their cattle, their homes were stricken with these plagues. But not the Hebrews' cattle and not the Hebrews' sheep in their homes and their bodies remained free from the plagues. And more plagues come. And Moses just keeps trusting in his commander-in-chief. And Pharaoh keeps saying no. Let my people go. And he warned Pharaoh one last time that the firstborn sons of Egypt would perish if he did not heed this last warning to let the Hebrews go. And the Israelites prepared just as they had been directed, spreading the blood of the slain pure lamb over the lintel post of their doors. And that night as the angel of death came through Egypt and was taking the lives of the firstborn throughout the land, the Hebrews were safe. And Pharaoh, in rage, in embarrassment, this is a man who had been raised since he was a boy to believe that he was not just man, but that he was God incarnate, destined to rule the mightiest nation, Egypt. And yet, in a night, he has been shown that he is powerless. And so, in his grief, he orders that the Israelites leave his land. And so, they begin packing their things as quickly as they can, and they rush out into the night. And as the dawn comes up and that desert sun starts beating down upon them, a cloud appears. Not, not an atmospheric cloud, but a heavenly cloud. And the entire congregation of the Hebrews is covered in shade from the burning desert sun. And what are they learning? What are they learning after generations of slavery, after generations of not knowing the power of their God? He's teaching them from day one of this journey what it's like not to fear the powers of nature, not to be afraid of the enemy. We read on in Psalms 91, starting at verse 3, Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart, in verse 5, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. 
The next episode in this story takes place very quickly because now Pharaoh back in his palace, still reeling with his grief, rage begins to set in. The embarrassment begins to set in. He's been made to look impotent in front of his entire nation. And so what does he do? But he orders his armies to assemble and to chase and to bring back these slaves, to punish them and to impound them back into slavery. And so here the camp of the Israelites, they reach the edge of the Red Sea. And at this location at the Red Sea, there are cliffs on either side. They can move forward or they can move back, but they cannot move to either side. And as they are there assembling at the edge of the Red Sea, not knowing what they're going to do next, they begin to hear a sound, a deep rumbling sound coming from far in the distance behind them. And as they turn, they see clouds of dust rising up from chariots and horses racing towards them. And they see the flash of the sun on the metal of their spears and their armor as the army is racing towards them. I didn't think so much of it at the time, but looking back at an experience in, in Lake County just a, well, I guess it was a lot of years ago, but to me it seems like just a few years ago, I, I've come to understand a little something of this incident. We decided one spring that we were going to go up to, to Snow Mountain. Snow Mountain, 700 feet, uh, it's up in northern Lake County. And so we took our little pickup truck, a little two-wheel drive Nissan, and we took... Uh, took the boys and went up to Snow Mountain, still had snow on it. And so we were playing in the snow and throwing snowballs and the sun began to go down. And from up on Snow Mountain, you can see both the Sutter Buttes over in the uh, Central Valley. But if you look to the south, on a clear day, you can also see Mount Diablo uh, down in Contra Costa County. It's a magnificent vista. And we sat up there and we waited. We watched the sun as it went down over the coastal range. And then we headed back down. As we were coming back down, we got to this river. Actually, it's called Elk Creek, but in the spring, it's swollen. It's really a river. And we had crossed it coming up to the mountain we knew. Um, but as we reached this, uh, this stream, it was pitch black. And we stopped, and the road went right down into this black water, this black, rushing water. And our headlights, casting across about 40 feet to the other side, could see only trees and underbrush, no road. And we had our flashlights, and we're looking, and we're trying to see which way to come across. And had we taken a wrong turn in the night? Uh, Had we missed something? Uh, This couldn't have been where we crossed. And we walked to the edge of the water, and it was just black, and it was rushing, and it was so far across, and there was no road on the other side. We had no idea how deep it was, but we knew that it it had to be deep. And we stayed there for the longest time, not knowing. We we, we knew we couldn't stay there all night. It was getting cold. We had the kids. We needed to find our way home, and so we prayed. And after we did that, we, we recalled something. We recalled on the way up that when we had crossed over that creek, we hadn't come straight across the creek. No, we hadn't. We had actually driven diagonally about 100, 150 yards through the creek where there was a sand, uh, a gravel bar through 
this creek that went diagonally and would actually join up with uh, the road, which was ended up being a couple hundred yards downstream. And so with those prayers on our lips, we, we aimed the car, the, the, the truck that way, and we plunged into this water, and water came up over the hood of the car, of the truck. And we settled in, and water was, it seemed like a lot higher than it was when we went up the, when we were going up there. And I could feel the gravel underneath the tires, and we kept getting traction. We kept moving forward, and as we bobbed through the water, and the water was coming up over the headlights, so we didn't have good visibility. And then as we bounced up over a rock under the water, the headlights went up, and there on the other side we saw the tracks that led up and out. And we stopped on that far side, and both shared a very, very sincere prayer of thanks as God has gotten through it, through that raging stream in the middle of the night in utter darkness. And looking back at that, we didn't have any angry troops chasing us to that stream. You know, we just wanted to get home. That's all we wanted to do. And yet the Israelites are stuck before this body of water, knowing that they can't swim, they have no boats, and there's an army coming behind that will kill them. And those it doesn't kill will drag back into slavery. And before long, naturally, these former slaves began to lash out in anger. And Moses begins to see their limp hands turning into hard fists, and they begin to shout out, Moses, let us out here to die. And rather than arguing with them, Moses simply says in a booming voice, Stand still and see the salvation of God. And even as he speaks, the pillar of cloud that was before them providing them shade moves behind the million Hebrews and casts darkness upon the advancing army. And confused, they stop. They don't, they don't know what has happened there's dust, there's darkness, the horses panic, and the army is stalled. The last rays now of the sun gone, the light is only shining down on the Hebrews, and Moses stretches out his rod over the Red Sea. And with a command, a mighty wind comes up, and the Red Sea opens, and there in the light cast from God's cloud is a path stretching off as far as their eyes can see across what moments before had been a solid body of water. And so they all start marching in, the tens of thousands, the millions of them across, and they pass through the Red Sea. It takes them all night just to get across. And they assemble just as the dawn is coming on that far shore and they look back at what God has brought them through. And just at that moment, God raises the cloud that had been holding back the Egyptians. And they see what has happened and they see the path. And in their rage, they decide that they are going to pursue. doesn't seem to make sense why they would do that. And yet every one of those soldiers had lost someone that night before. Every one of those soldiers knew that 
these people were somehow responsible for their loss of their son or for their brother's son. They knew that they were on a mission of revenge. And so they charged out into the Red Sea, not thinking, just hating, just wanting to catch them. And before they get even halfway, Moses again stretches out his rod and those piled up waters come crashing down with a deafening hiss, smashing their prey. And afterwards, the floating bodies and debris are all that remains. What did the Hebrews learn that morning on that shore? Let's look at verses 7 and 8 of Psalms 91. A thousand may fall at your side. Ten thousand may fall at your right hand. But it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. I believe that God was teaching them that with God on their side, with God as their commander-in-chief, they had nothing to fear. God sums up Moses sums up, as only he could from his experiences, starting at verse 9. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord, who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. Another way that we could say this would be that if we make the Most High our refuge, no harm will ever prevent us from following God's will in our lives, in our churches, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods. And isn't that the most important thing to know? To know that we serve a God that we can trust no matter what. It's as important today as it was for the Hebrews in making their great escape from Egypt. It's as important today in the uncertainties that we face, both in our households and our homes and as a nation, to remember that we serve a mighty God. From whom do we get our peace and our sense of security? From God. God is our peace. God has promised us a homeland that is secure. Because only a homeland provided by God can truly be secure. A homeland where disease cannot strike, where death has no quarter, where robbers cannot break in and steal, that is the secure homeland that our God, our Father, has promised to us. What do you think? With this realization, isn't it time that we recommit our lives to trust in God? It's so easy to get caught up in the challenges, in the bills that we don't know how we're going to pay, the medical diagnosis we didn't expect that we never thought we'd be facing. 
the loss of someone close to us that we'd come to rely upon so much. Isn't it time to recommit our lives to trusting in that God, in that Father who has promised to see us through everything? Our Heavenly Father, we we thank you so much for your promise, for your promise to be there with us each step of our journey. And so with that realization, Father, our prayer as we leave this morning is that we will ever trust in you and through that trust that we will be emboldened to be witnesses for you each and every day. Lord, thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.